Section Zero of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Six, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rositer Johnson, and John Rudd. An outline narrative tracing briefly the causes connections and consequences of great events from barbarossa to dante by charles f horn it was during the period of about one hundred and fifty years extending from the middle of the twelfth to the close of the thirteenth century that the features of our modern civilization began to assume a recognizable form the age was characterized by the decline of feudalism and by the growth of all the new influences which combined to create a new state of society. With the decay of the great lords came the rise of the great cities, the increased power and importance of the middle classes, the burghers or citizens who dominate the world today. In opposition to these there came also an unforeseen accession of strength to kings. The boundaries of modern states grew more clearly defined, modern nationalities were distinctly established europe assumed something of the outline something of the social character which she still retains the period includes not only the culmination and close of the crusading fervor but also coincident with this the culmination of both the religious and the temporal powers of the popes and the scarce recognized beginning of their decline universities vaguely existent before now increase rapidly in numbers and importance receive definite outlines and foundations and exert a mighty influence in fact it has been not inaptly said that the rule of medieval europe was divided amid three powers the emperor the pope and the university of paris books from which we can trace the history of the time became as numerous as before they had been scant and vague and misleading thought reveals itself struggling everywhere for expression displayed at times in the sunshine of song and rhyme and merry laughter at times in the storms of philosophic dispute and religious persecution in short this was an age of strife between old ways and new it saw the granting of magna charta but it saw also the establishment of the inquisition and the creation of the two great monastic orders whose opposing methods the dominicans ruling by fear and the franciscans by love are typical of the contrasting spirits of the time it was the age which in the next century under dante's influence was to burst into blossom as the renaissance frederick barbarossa not often has one man proven influential enough to dominate and alter the direction of his epoch but very frequently we see one taking advantage of its tendencies and so managing these so directing them that he seems almost to create his surroundings and becomes to all men the expression and example of his times such a leader was the emperor frederick barbarossa eleven fifty two to eleven ninety and we may follow his fortunes in tracing the early part of this era the first crusade had depleted europe of half a million fighting men then came a pause of fifty years after which it was learned that jerusalem was again in danger of falling into the hands of mahometans so in eleven forty seven 
another vast crusading army set out to the rescue. Barbarossa himself went with his second crusade as a young German noble. He was one of the few who escaped death in the Asian deserts, one of the very few who, from the colossal failure of the expedition, returned to Europe with added honor and reputation. He was elected emperor. The crusade had been as deadly as the first, though less successful, and when this nominal leadership of Western Europe was thus conferred on the gallant Frederick, he found the Teutonic races weakened by the loss of a million of their most valiant warriors, that is, of the feudal lords and their retainers. Here we find at once one of the great causes of the decay of feudalism. Many of the old families had become wholly extinct, and under the feudal system their estates lapsed to the overlords, the kings. Other families were represented only by heiresses, and the marrying of these ladies became a recognized move in the game for power, in which the kings, and especially the Emperor Frederick, now took a foremost part. Previous emperors had been figureheads. Frederick became the real ruler of Europe. The kings of Denmark and Poland fully acknowledged themselves his vassals. So also, though less definitely, did the king of England. For a moment, the imperial unity of Europe seemed reviving. Only one of the emperor's great dukes, Henry the Lion of Saxony, dared stand against him, and Henry was ultimately crushed. The war cries of the two opponents, however, became eternalized as factional names in the struggle of Frederick's successors against other foes. For generations, whoever upheld the empire was a Weibling, and whoever would attack it on whatsoever plea, a Welf. Frederick, having established his power in Germany, attempted to assert it in Italy as well, and so the strife passed over the Alps and became that of Gibline against Guelf in Italian phrase, of emperor against pope, of monarchy against democracy. It was this fatal insistence upon Italian authority that brought disaster upon Frederick and all his house, and ultimately upon the empire as well, and on the entire German race. The Italians had been quite content to call themselves subjects of a Holy Roman Empire, which extended but vaguely over Europe and whose chief took his title from their ancient city and only came among them to be crowned. They looked at the matter in a wholly different light when Frederick regarded his position seriously and interfered in the affairs with a strong hand, crushing their feuds and exacting money tribute. Rebellion was promptly kindled, and for twenty years one German army after another dwindled away in the passage of the Alps, wasted under the fevers of Italian marshes, or was crushed in desperate battle. By the Treaty of Constance in 1183, Frederick confessed the one defeat of his career. He had acknowledged the practical independence of the Italian cities. Cities and Kings The emperor had in fact encountered a power too strong for him. He had been struggling against the beginnings of modern democracy, a system stronger even in its infancy than the ancient rule of the aristocracy, which it has gradually supplanted. The resistance of Italy came not from its knights and lords, but from its great cities, which had been slowly growing more and more self-reliant and independent. 
the rise of these city republics of the Middle Ages cannot be fully traced. Everywhere, little communities of men seem to have been driven by desperation to build walls about their group of homes and to defy all comers. And it was in Italy that the ancient Roman civilization had been most firmly established, and the barbarian dominance least complete. So it was in Italy that these walled towns first asserted their importance. Venice, indeed, protected by her marshes, we have seen establishing a somewhat republican form even from her foundation. She and Genoa and Pisa defended themselves against the Saracens and built ships and grew to be the chief maritime powers of the Mediterranean, rulers of island empires. They fought wars against one another, and Pisa was overwhelmed and ruined in a tremendous conflict with Genoa. Genoa's fleets carried supplies for the first crusaders. In later crusades, when the deadly nature of the long journey by land was more clearly known, the wealthy maritime republics were hired to carry the crusaders themselves to the east, and profited vastly by the business. Gradually, the inland cities took courage from their seaboard neighbors. Florence became the center of reviving art, her citizens the chief bankers for all Europe. Milan became chief of the Lombard cities, leading them against Barbarossa. And when he captured and destroyed the metropolis in 1161, the burghers of the surrounding lesser towns rallied to her help. No sooner was the emperor out of reach than walls and houses rose again with the speed of magic, till Milan stood reincarnate, fairer and stronger than before. A similar though slower growth can be traced among the cities of the north. As early as 1067, we find the town of Mons near Normandy rebelling against its lord. Still earlier, had Henry, the city builder, thought it wise to strengthen and fortify his peasantry, despite the counsel of his barons. Indeed, through all the Middle Ages, we find kings and commons drawn often into union by their mutual antagonism to the feudal nobility. Barbarossa, even while he quarreled with the Italian cities, encouraged those of Germany. At the same time that Frederick was thus reasserting the imperial power, England had a strong king in Henry II. By wedding the most important feudal heiress in France, Henry added so many provinces to his ancestral French domain of Normandy that more than half France lay in his possession, and the French kings found that in this overgrown duke, who was also an independent monarch, they possessed a vassal far wealthier and more powerful than themselves. Henry took more than one step toward the humiliation, or even subjugation, of France, but seems to have been hampered by a real feudal respect for his overlord. Moreover, he got into the same difficulty as the emperor. He quarreled with the church and found it too strong for him. Much of his time and most of his energy were devoted to his celebrated struggle against his great bishop, Thomas Becket. Thus the French king was given time and opportunity to strengthen his sovereignty. Then came the great Third Crusade, altering and once more upsetting the growing forces of the times. And among its many unforeseen results was the rescue of France from the grip of her too mighty vassal. The long-threatening recapture of Jerusalem became a fact in 1187, the Christian kingdom established by the First Crusade was overthrown, and Emperor Barbarossa in his splendid and revered old age 
vowed to attempt its re-establishment. Once more did all the nobility of Europe pour eastward, embracing eagerly the purpose of their chief. This was the last great crusade, those that followed being but feeble and unimportant efforts in comparison. Not only was the emperor at its head, but the king of England, son of Henry II, the famous Richard of the Lion Heart, took up the movement with enthusiasm. So also, though less passionately, did Philip Augustus, ablest of the kings of France. No other crusade could boast such names as these. Yet the mighty undertaking ended in failure. Barbarossa perished in the east, and the glory of his empire died with him. Richard and Philip quarreled about precedence, and the French king seized the opportunity to return home, full of shrewd plans for the humbling of his obnoxious vassal sovereign. Richard, left alone with his dwindling plague-stricken forces, had finally to acknowledge the hopelessness of the cause. His adventures have been made the theme of many a romance. On his way home he was seized and imprisoned in Germany, and this, and his death soon after, left the throne to his brother John. Beginnings of Modern Government Historians have united to pour upon John every species of opprobrium. Certain it is that he secured his crown by evil means, that he sought to protect it by falsity and treachery. But after all, his rival, Philip Augustus, could be treacherous too. And the main difference between them is that Philip defeated John. He wrenched from him Normandy and many of John's other French provinces, so that the dominion of the English kings were reduced to scarce half their former compass, hence the opprobrium on John. Heavy as the loss might seem, it proved in reality a blessing to the English race. Forced to confine themselves to Great Britain, her kings became truly English, instead of French, which they had been hitherto. England ceased to be a mere appanage of Normandy, ruled by Norman nobles. The Normans who had settled in the island became sharply divided from those who remained in France, and Saxons and English Normans became firmly welded into a united race. This is what England owns to John. The Normans who had settled in the island became sharply divided from those who remained in France, and Saxons and English Normans became firmly welded into a united race. This is what England owes to John. Moreover, his tyranny and falsehood led the lower class in his realm to unite with the nobility against him. Thus, the deepest class distinction of feudal times between lord and serf, the owner and the owned, became less marked in England than elsewhere in Europe. The vast threefold struggle, which had everywhere to be fought out between kings, nobles, and commons, was in England decided against the kings by the union of the other two. Their combined strength forced from John the Magna Charta, the Great Charter, the foundation of modern government in England. Though the celebrated document granted no new privilege to lord or citizen or peasant, it only confirmed on parchment the rights which John would have denied them. So this also, the cornerstone of liberty, the beginning of constitutional progress, does England owe to her oppressor. Never, perhaps, has any man devoted to evil done unwittingly so much of good as he. Thus the English nation grew united, while the French provinces were brought into closer dependence on their own king. In fact, Philip Augustus, by clever use now of the commons, now of the nobles, 
succeeded in dominating both. Following his example, his successors managed for many centuries to remain lords of France, with a security and absoluteness of power which no English king, no German emperor, was ever again to attain. In Germany, the death of Barbarossa left his throne to a short-lived evil son, and then to an infant grandson, Frederick II. Other claimants to the realm sprang up. The great lords asserted and fully established their right to elect what emperor they pleased. Through this right they made themselves strong, their ruler weak, and so feudalism persisted in Germany while it was fading in France and England. Private war continued. Baron fought against Baron. Confusion and anarchy prevailed more and more, and in the march of civilization, Germany was left behind. She lagged for centuries in the rear of her neighbors, staring after them, despising, envying, scarce comprehending. It is only within the last hundred and fifty years that Germany has reasserted her ancient place amongst the foremost of the nations. We have said that the only place where Barbarossa failed was in his Italian wars. These were waged against democracy and against the popes. Southern Italy was at this time a kingdom. In central Italy lay the papal states, and north of these were all the independent cities. Assuming the democratic leadership of the cities, the popes acquired a strong temporal power. The growth of these we have traced through earlier periods. It reached its culmination under Pope Innocent III, 1198-1216. He almost succeeded to the emperors as the acknowledged ruler of Europe. Secured from martial invasion by the strength of the federated cities, as well as by the spiritual dominion which he wielded, Innocent extended his authority over all men and all affairs. He ordered unlucky King John to accept a certain archbishop for England, and when John refused, England was laid under an interdict, that is, no church services could be held there, not even to shrieve the dying or bury the dead. For a while John was scornful, but at length his accumulating troubles forced him to kneel submissively to the Pope, surrender his crown, and receive it back as a vassal of the papacy, under obligation to pay heavy tribute. By the same weapon of an interdict, Innocent forced the mighty Philip Augustus to take back a wife, whom he had divorced without papal consent, and in Germany Innocent twice secured the creation of an emperor of his own choice the second being the child Frederick II, who had been brought up under the Pope's own guardianship. Among other spectacular features of his reign, Innocent founded the Inquisition, and thus formally divorced the Church from its earlier preaching of universal peace and love. Moreover, he attempted a diversion of the tremendous, wasted power of the Crusades. He wanted holy wars fought nearer home, and preached a crusade against John of England, the mere threat brought John to his knees, and Innocent then turned his newfound weapon against the heretics of southern France, the Albigenses. These unfortunate people, having a certain religious firmness wholly incomprehensible to John, refused submission. The crusade against them became an actual and awful reality. In the name of Christ, men devastated a Christian country. The spirit of persecution thus aroused became rampant in religion, and remained so for over half a thousand years. Rebels against the Church accepted its most evil teaching, 
and in their brief periods of power became torturers and executioners in their turn. The first of the religious wars achieved its purpose. It exterminated, or at least suppressed, the heresy by exterminating every heretic who dared assert himself. Vast numbers of holy orthodox Christians perished also, since even they fought against the crusaders in defending their homes. War did not change its hideous face because man had presumed to place a blessing on it. Next to Italy, southern France had been the most cultured land of Europe. The crusaders left it almost a desert. It had been practically independent of the kings of Paris. Henceforth it offered them no resistance. A more excusable direction given by Innocent to the crusading enthusiasm was against the Saracens in Spain. A new and tremendous army of these had come over from Africa to reinforce their brethren, who shared the peninsula with the Spaniards. The Pope's preaching sent 60,000 crusaders to help the Spaniards against this swarm of invaders, and the Saracens were completely defeated. The Battle of Navas de Tolosa in 1212 settled that Spain was to be Christian instead of Mohammedan. The Later Crusades Against the Saracens of the East, however, crusades grew less and less effective. Geography explains much of history. In Spain, the Saracens were weak because far from the center of their power. In the East, the Europeans were at the same disadvantage. For one man who fell in battle in the Holy Land, twenty perished of starvation or disease upon the journey thither. Europe began to realize this. The East no longer lured men with golden glamour that it held for an earlier generation. Kings had the contrasted examples of Philip Augustus and the heroic Richard to teach them the value of staying at home. We need glance but briefly at these later crusades. The fourth was undertaken in 1203. Venice contracted to transport its warriors to the Holy Land, but instead persuade them to join her in an attack upon the decrepit empire of the East. Constantinople fell before their assault and received a Norman emperor, nor did the religious zeal of these particular followers of the cross ever carry them farther on their original errand. They were content to establish themselves as kings, dukes, and counts in their unexpected empire. Some of the little Frankish states thus created lasted for over two centuries. Though the central power at Constantinople was regained by the Greek emperors of the East in 1261. Meanwhile, the patriotic and powerful King Andrew of Hungary led the Fifth Crusade. The German emperor Frederick II headed a sixth in which, by diplomacy rather than arms, he temporarily regained Jerusalem. For a time, this treaty of peace deprived of their occupation the orders of religious knighthood still warring in the East. One of these, the Teutonic Knights, made friends with Frederick, and by his aid its members were transported to the eastern frontier of Germany, where, among the Poles and pro-Russians, Prussians, they could still find heathen fighting to their taste. From this order sprang the military basis of modern Prussia. The Seventh and Eighth Crusades were the work of the great French king and saint Louis IX. The enthusiasm which had roused the mass of ordinary men to these vast destructive outpourings was faded. Louis had to coax and persuade his people to follow him, and even his earnest purpose and real ability could not save his expeditions from disastrous failure. In the Seventh Crusade, he attacked not Jerusalem but Egypt, then the center of Mohammedan power. He was defeated 
and made prisoner. His army was practically exterminated. Yet by a personal heroism, which shone even more brilliantly in adversity than in success, he has won lasting fame. His captivity disrupted an empire. The Mamelukes, the slave soldiers of Egypt, who had fought most valiantly against him, were wakened to a realization of their own power. They overthrew their sultan and found an Egyptian government which lasted until Napoleon's time. After much suffering, Louis was allowed to purchase his freedom and return to France. There he spent long years of wise government, of noble guidance of his people, and of secret preparations which he dared not avow. At length in his old age, he confessed to his astounded nation that he meant to make one more attempt against the Saracens. It was a vow to God, he said, and he begged his people for assistance. The age had outgrown crusades. Perhaps no one man in all Louis's domains believed in the possibility of his success. History scarce presents anywhere a spectacle more pathetic than this last crusade, compelled by the fire of a single enthusiast. In love of him his soldiers followed him, though with despair at heart. And the weeping crowds who bade them farewell at their ships mourned them as men already dead. They attempted to attack the Saracens, first to Tunis, and there Louis died of fever. The Crusades perished with him. Pope and Emperor With the wane of the crusading fervor waned also the power of the popes. Innocent had extended his authority by terror and physical force, but men soon ceased to find religious inspiration for such holy wars, and the calls of later popes fell upon deafened ears. The democratic policy of Innocent's predecessors had rallied all Italy around them, but his successors seemed to have failed to recognize their true sources of strength. They abandoned their allies and ruled with autocratic power. Italy became divided, half Gulf, half Ghibelline. Moreover, even Frederick II, the ward whom Innocent had placed on the imperial throne, refused to sanction the encroachments of papal authority over the empire. So the strife of emperor and pope began again, only to terminate with the utter defeat and extermination of the great house of Barbarossa. Their possessions in southern Italy and Sicily were conferred by the popes upon Charles of Anjou, brother of Louis IX of France. But while the popes were thus temporarily successful in the giant contest against their greatest rival, to such partisan extremes were they driven by the necessities of the struggle that the awakening world looked at them with doubtful eyes, began to question their spiritual rights and honors as well as the temporal authority they claimed. In Charles of Anjou, the Pope soon found that they had but substituted one master for another. Charles was rapidly becoming as obnoxious to Rome as the emperors had ever been, when suddenly the tyranny of his French soldiers roused the Sicilians to desperation and by the massacre of the Sicilian Vespers, the French power in Italy was crushed. Men were slow to realize that the mighty hold which the papacy had once possessed on the deep heart of the world was being sapped at its foundation. Diplomatic pontiffs still managed for a time to play off one sovereign against another, and to have their battles fought by foreign armies on a business basis. As late as the year 1300, the first great jubilee of the church was celebrated and brought hundreds of thousands of pilgrims flocking to Rome. The papacy, though sorely pressed by many enemies, 
still proudly asserted its political supremacy, but in truth it had lost its power, not only over the minds of kings to hold them in subjection, not only over the interests of nobles to stir them to revolt, but, alas, even over the love of the lower classes to rally them for its defense. Within ten years from the great jubilee, the papacy met complete defeat and subjugation at the hands of a far lesser man and feebler monarch than Frederick II. To the empire, the long contest was as disastrous as to the papacy. When Frederick II, at one time the most splendid monarch of Europe, died in 1250, a crushed and defeated man, Germany sank into such anarchy as it had not known since the days of the Hunnish invasion. When the emperor was condemned by the church, says an ancient chronicle, robbers made merry over their booty, plowshares were beaten into swords, reaping hooks into lances, men went everywhere with flint and steel, setting in a blaze whatsoever they found. The period from 1254 to 1273 is known as the Great Interregnum in German history. There was no emperor, no authority, and every little lord fought and robbed as he pleased. The cities, driven to desperation, raised armed forces of their own and united into leagues, which later developed into the great Hanseatic League, more powerful than neighboring kings. The anarchy spread to Italy. Bands of free companies roamed from place to place, plundering, fighting battles, storming walled cities, and at last the Pope sent thoroughly frightened word to Germany that the lords must elect an emperor to keep order, or he would appoint one himself. The Church had learned its lesson, that without a strong civil government it could not exist, and perhaps the government had at least partly seen what later ages learned more fully, that without religion it could not exist. Church and state were gentler to each other after that. They realized that whatever their quarrels, they must stand or fall together. So, in 1273, it was the Pope's insistence that led to the selection of another emperor, Rudolf of Habsburg. He was one of the lesser nobles, elected by the great dukes, so that he should be too feeble to interfere with them. But he did interfere, and overthrew Ottokar of Bohemia, the strongest of them all, and restored some measure of law and tranquility to distracted Germany. His son he managed to establish as Duke of Austria, and eventually the empire became hereditary in the family, so that the Habsburgs remained rulers of Germany until Napoleon, that upsetter of so many comfortable sinecures, drove them out. Of Austria, they are emperors even to this day. The Tartars. As though poor, dishelved Germany had not troubles sufficient of her own, she suffered also in this century from the last of the great Asiatic invasions. About the year 1200, a remarkable military leader, Genghis Khan, appeared among the Tartars, a Mongol race of northern Asia. He organized their wild tribes and started them on a bloody career of rapine and conquest. He became emperor of China. His hordes spread over India and Persia. In 1226, they entered Russia, and after an heroic struggle, the Russian duchies and republics were forced into submission to the Tartar yoke. For nearly two centuries, Russia became part, not of Europe, but of Asia, and her civilization received an oriental tinge which it has scarce yet outgrown. 
the huge Tatar invasion penetrated even to Silesia in eastern Germany, where the Asiatics defeated a German army at Liegnitz in 1241. But so great was the invaders' loss that they retreated, nor did their leaders ever again seek to penetrate the land of the ironclad men. The real yellow peril of Europe, her submersion under the flood of Asia's millions, was perhaps possible at Liegnitz. It has never been so since. In the construction of impenetrable armor, the inventive genius of the West had already begun to rise superior to the barbaric fury of the East. The arts of civilization were soon to soar immeasurably above mere numerical superiority. In Asia, the Tartar power probably reached its greatest height under Kublai Khan, the emperor of China whom Marco Polo visited. And it is worth our modern notice that Kublai failed in an attempt to conquer Japan. Russia fell victim to the Tartar hordes. Japan repelled them. Progress of Constitutional Government While Europe and Asia were thus in turmoil throughout most of this era, England, secure in her island isolation, was making rapid progress on the career of union and free government, whereon John had so unintentionally started her. The age thus adds to its other claims to distinction, that of having seen the beginnings of constitutional government. England's Magna Charta was paralleled by the Golden Bull of Hungary, a charter granted by the crusading King Andrew to his tumultuous subjects. In England, the long reign of the weak Henry III, son of John, took more and more from the power of the crown. He was opposed by Simon of Montfort, who, to secure the affections and support of the common people, summoned their representatives to meet in a parliament with the knights and bishops. His mad parliament of 1258 contained the first shadow of a government by the people. His later assemblies were still more democratic. Considered in this light, one likes to remember that Montfort's first assembly won its title of mad by passing such excellent laws that none of those in power would submit to them. Following Henry III, Edward I came to the throne, a man of broad views and legal mind. He confirmed and legalized the rights already attained by his subjects, and centralized the authority of all Great Britain in his own hands by conquering both Wales and Scotland. The struggles of Sir William Wallace and his devoted followers to throw off the English yoke ended only in disaster. Edward, the most enlightened and perhaps the most brilliant sovereign of the 13th century, endeavored to protect the Jews, but was finally compelled by the clamor of his subjects to expel the unfortunate race from his domains. He, however, permitted the exiles to take their wealth with them, and the scarcity thus created was one of the contributing causes which compelled him to promise his parliaments not to lay taxes without their consent. It was by this power to control the purse of king and country that Parliament finally established itself as the supreme power in England. It bought each one of its concessions, each added authority. So that we may fairly figure that from this time trade becomes as important as war. Gold begins to seem to men not only more attractive, but more powerful than iron. The age of brute strength has passed. The age of schemes and subtle policies begun. The merchant dominates the knight. End of section zero.